Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology, and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. In this episode, I am once again joined by philosopher and economist Professor Carl Weidequist, Professor of Philosophy at Georgetown University in Qatar. He was also the co-founder of the US Basic Income Guarantee Network, which was the first basic income network in the United States, and was co-chair of the Basic Income Earth Network from 2008 to 2017. Carl is best known for his ardent support of a universal basic income, an unconditional payment to all citizens sufficient to cover basic needs. The core of his work is focused on justifying a UBI from the perspectives of property rights and freedom. His defense of this social program that has support from both sides of the political spectrum can be summed up as the power to say no, which we explore a bit in our conversation. He has recently co-authored several books, two of which served as the basis of our discussion. These are The Prehistory of Private Property, which debunks three false claims commonly accepted by contemporary political philosophers regarding property systems, and the book Prehistoric Myths in Modern Political Philosophy, which explores how philosophers use and perpetuate myths about prehistory. While there's barely any mention of universal basic income in these texts, the conclusion that leads from them can be seen to be strongly in support of a social program like a UBI. I've been excited about the idea of universal basic income since I first heard of it, not only for its potential in alleviating poverty and suffering, but also because I can see it leading to an explosion of creativity, new innovations in businesses, as well as provide people with the freedom and time to pursue other forms of social change, which we are quite obviously in desperate need of around the world. Alrighty, let's get into it. Here is my conversation with Professor Carl Weidequist. I know we spoke um, a couple of years ago, um, and I was thrilled to have the chance to speak to you then. And I'm again, uh, again, I'm very happy to to have you on uh, to to follow up and to talk about um, universal basic income and some of the work you've been up to. But before we dive into all of that, um, I would just love to hear how you came to become a philosopher. How did you come to be a a a big supporter? Uh, of uh, universal basic income and, a, and, and an advocate for, you know, over the p- uh, past few decades. Politics and ethics were a big subject around the uh, dinner table at my house when I was growing up. Um, my dad was a Presbyterian minister, not the kind you have in Northern Ireland, but uh, uh, the more uh, cerebral um uh, the more cerebral kind you have in the United States. And uh, it was the 1970s and early 80s. It uh, was a lot of political issues going around. My parents are very concerned with uh, building a more just society. They took, uh, they took the caring aspects of Christianity way more seriously uh, than a lot of other people, a lot of other Christians. And, and they took the the really judgmental, those people are bad sort of aspects of Christianity, that that wasn't their thing. Um, so we talked about right and wrong a lot, and uh, the and we, we would argue about politics and things like that, and had a strong sense that, that uh, morality is very important and not that easy to figure out what is the right thing to do in a lot of occasions. Uh, 
and that our society was uh, our society was uh, our society is unjust, and it's it's our job to create a just society. And I I thought we'd taken a big step forward with the civil rights movement, which appeared to be over to uh, to you know a, a a white child at that time living in an integrated town. Um, it appeared like oh well we won that one now we got to tackle poverty. Um, that's the biggest injustice left. And I'm like, okay, well, we haven't actually, we haven't actually fixed that one yet. But uh, we also, poverty is a huge injustice, both, both uh, locally and worldwide. Um, and so, so I, I was, that was a concern of mine. And then uh, on my 15th birthday, um, my, on my 15th birthday, I saw Milton Friedman's I was watching Milton Friedman's television show called Free to Choose. He has his book, Free to Choose, and he had a PBS television show, that's public broadcasting in the United States, where they they had one episode for each chapter of his book. Um, and maybe it's embarrassing to say how influenced I was by Milton Friedman, because I'm really not a fan of his anymore, but... The episode that happened to air on my 15th birthday, February 7th, 1980, was about the guaranteed income. And I was convinced. Um, and I've been really convinced of it ever since. My view of it has changed and why I think it's important has changed. But I was convinced from that day at 15. So I've supported, I've supported uh, basic income for over 40 years. But of course, I was in high school at the time, so I had to go to high school and college. I worked for a while. I didn't actually start writing about basic income uh, until the late 1990s, so over over 15 years later till I actually started writing about it. Yeah. Okay. So when you so you recognize that it was a um, a critical part of uh, seeing to attempting to rectify some of the injustice in the world um, now. In the writing you've done since, a, uh, a rather than justifying universal basic income as, uh, like I guess, from more of a utilitarian perspective, where you know we're just trying to ensure the, the greatest good for the greatest number, or um, based on necessity due to the the destruction of jobs uh, due to automation or uh, whatever, however that might be caused, um, your uh, the the arguments that you put forth for universal basic income are rooted, at least to my knowledge, in in freedom and conceptions of of property. Uh, would would you say that's yes. correct? Yeah. So, I definitely want to dive into. Uh, we will we will dive um, into universal basic income towards the end of the uh, the conversation. But I think it's really worth exploring the ideas of freedom and ideas of property rights and. Uh, how they have perhaps evolved over time and how they could actually lead to a very strong justification for um, universal basic income. So I think a good place to start might be um, with freedom or property rights. Let, let's, go with, um, let's go with freedom just because I think it's going to be more succinct um, in, the, in, in this conversation. So we all have this. We all have um, intuitive conceptions of freedom, um, and freedom is very much in the public discourse right now. Um, you know, with uh, things like the coronavirus and just you know freedom of speech and all that. But how have philosophers thought about freedom, and 
what are the yeah, what are the various takes on freedom um, that that exist, and how do you well, conceive of it? Uh, it occurs to me on your earlier question, I I didn't answer all the aspects of that question. I asked answered how I got into basic income, but not how not how I got into philosophy. Um, so I'm thinking maybe I should back up. And finish that one because that can actually yeah, help yeah. us. That, that sounds great. Uh, that sounds with, great. With with this question, the questions about freedom and property. Uh, so Milton Friedman emphasized cost effectiveness was his his justification for basic income. He wanted to streamline the welfare state but get more out of it because he was saying a lot of it was being wasted. Um, and I think that was certainly true of the welfare system that we had. A lot of it was wasted. A lot of it, even today, it's a much smaller system than we used to have. And a lot of what we're spending is still is still spent the wrong ways on overhead and on, on supervising people. As a matter of fact, we've even gone the wrong direction, increasing the supervision. So less of our less of our spending now than than 40 years ago goes to actually helping people and more to supervising them. Though, but and now but his effort was just do this because it's better for the people who uh, better for uh, the people who pay taxes and things because if they have to spend less to get more. But what I thought was that that as a real challenge, not just to the right, but also to the left, that that if you really want to help people, you're going to stop all this judging and stuff and really make sure just everybody has enough. If you really care about the people you're trying to help. That you ought to be do that. That you ought to be that that you ought to be doing it unconditionally, and thinking about this unconditional, this right to an unconditional access has led me on a a, a, a thought that is a, a line of thought that is very different than Milton Friedman and rejects a lot of his stuff, uh, but also very different than what I've been hearing. I've been hearing for people. Uh, supporting redistributional policies. Um, a lot of people back then, I, I used to say back in the 80s that like the, 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 the right wing knew how to help the poor and didn't want to, and the left wing uh, wanted to help the poor and didn't know how. Uh, that's not so true anymore. <laughs> that's not so true anymore. But at that time, there was, there was some truth in it, partly because the l- people in the left of center were clinging to the existing welfare state and didn't want to hear any criticism of it. They didn't want to hear basic income is better because it was so much under attack. And to some extent, they had a point because people didn't do what Milton Friedman said, which was get rid of the welfare state and place it, replace it with negative income tax. They just gutted the welfare state and replaced it with nothing, which was which was the worst of all uh, popular, uh, the worst of all ideas. And uh, I'm not for replacing the entire welfare state, by the way, but... Uh, so that my interest in social justice and my interest in distributive issues in social justice led me into getting a degree in economics because I figured, as I said, you know, the, the left wing didn't know how to solve the problems and the right wing didn't want to uh, the the problems, the deep problems of poverty. Well, I, then I should be an economist so I can find out, you know, I can know how to solve social problems. You should be an economist. So in 1990. I entered an economics program, uh, a PhD program at the City University of New York, and uh, after study, and I got my PhD uh, six years later. And I realized by that time, I kind of realized, well, actually, economically, it is not difficult 
to end poverty. A basic income, a basic income can end poverty. There aren't a lot of serious negative side effects. It's not a difficult economic problem. And there I was, the late 90s, trying to make a career as an economist, but also wanting to write about these social justice issues, which you you can write about those when you're an economist, but you can't really make your career on it. And I needed to get jobs and things like that. And I, and I got to the point after a few years, how can I do this stuff I really want to do full time? And also, more of the time I was find, at the time, I was finding that the barriers to a more just society are really not economic barriers. They are the barriers in people's beliefs. So I wanted to study people's beliefs. I wanted to study not so much ideology, but I wanted to study the arguments that people have that we sh- that we sh- against redistribution and for redistribution, and what is the theory behind this welfare type of system and that one. And I wanted to study these arguments, and the best way to do that was in political theory or political philosophy. Uh, so I got a degree. I went finally after <laughs> And in 2002, it was such a crazy idea to get a second PhD, but in but I couldn't get it out of my head. So it was by 2002 when I finally said, I can't get this idea out of my head. I'm, I'm going to Oxford and I'm going to get a PhD in political theory, which is essentially political philosophy taught in a political science department. Uh, so... Uh, so it was fast. It was much faster the second time. So I got it done in under four years, and I finished in 2006. And after that, eventually, I got a job as a philosopher because political philosophy, political theory, basically same thing. So eventually, I got a job as a philosopher, and that let me, and that gave me the opportunity to specialize in the ethics of policy. But also, now, I, uh, at one point, I thought it was a big mistake getting an economics PhD. But now that I'm done with it, I have two PhDs and I have a decent job, I realize actually having that economics background is pretty valuable. I can write about things have to do with basic income that combine the two approaches, things that economists wouldn't write or, or philosophers only wouldn't write. Um, and and I can go back and forth between the different disciplines. So uh, so it all worked. It all worked out in the end. But it really was a strange road to me to me becoming uh, this uh, philosopher economist. Mm. I feel that with just w- with my brief exposure to philosophy, that to do real to do substantive work uh, in a variety of the disciplines. It really helped. Like it's it's nearly necessary to have some sort of uh, to have a decent level of expertise in an adjacent or relevant discipline. So if you're studying consciousness or you know theories of mind, you need to know a bit of neuroscience uh, or you know issues of social justice. Like how do we uh, allocate our resources in such a way to uh, minimize um, social injustice? Well, you need to know a bit of, about economics. It's just it's like the you need to know the how in uh, in order to be able to justify the why sometimes because if it's impossible it, it just kind of reduces the this the space of potential solutions to a problem i guess if you have a decent understanding of how the world works in a relevant uh, discipline so uh then you were coach you were asking about freedom uh so uh freedom you know freedom is a long and contentious issue in political philosophy. Uh, now, uh, I am, and, 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 and uh, what I have been trying to do with my theory of freedom 
is to put more focus on the idea of of, uh, what I call status freedom. Because as opposed to what you could call scalar freedom. Now, those aren't that's not really very, very clear. These these terms. So you have to explain them. Status freedom is what we mean when we say uh, the uh, the prisoner was freed from prison. Or uh, we went to this. Well, we 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 uh, Harriet Tubman went south and freed slaves. Uh, or uh, that, when you're talking about, they have the status of an unfree person, and then they become a free person. Uh, and we think about, colloquially and normally, we talk about freedom in this sense, in that sense. But we also talk about freedom in the sense of being more free and less free on a, on a continuum. So scalar freedom is something that you could measure on a continuum. Or on a scale. Well, how much do you you know? Do you, do you, uh, how much freedom you have? More freedom, less freedom, but without saying there's some status of being free or unfree. But I want to look at the idea of having a status of being a free person or an unfree person, and put more focus on that. Now, it's complicated to do that um, because, and one of the things, uh, one of the reasons I think a lot of philosophers don't do that is because it's complicated because you have to have freedom to do this. That and the other things, a lot of different things that make up freedom. In, if, if when when we say a person is freed, uh, when you know we say uh, when 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 uh, Black Americans were 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 uh, were given their freedom in 1865, uh, we found out that actually that wasn't enough. They weren't nominal slaves, but uh, they weren't nominally slaves anymore. But after Reconstruction went bad. Uh, after after I mean it was reversed by by coups from from uh, from uh, uh, white terrorists, uh, then then the former slaves were in a new position that was not as unfree, but it was still not what you would call a truly free person. Uh, so looking at well, what are the characteristics that separates a free person from an unfree person? Uh, and one of the things that I look on that as being forced to do someone's bidding. If somebody can put you in a position where you're forced to do their bidding, you are clearly unfree. Uh, so uh, clearly a slave is an unfree person. Uh, a prisoner is an unfree person. But also the... the uh, Slave, former slaves or black people during the civil rights movement in most of the United States were also not fully free people. Uh, they were given very limited options of what they could do and were highly policed in order to get them to do the worst jobs that white people didn't want to do. Uh, and, and it was very effective. A few black people managed to, to overcome that. And very often when they did, they were lynched. Uh, and so it was actually very effective to get the vast majority of black people to do the lowest, un, uh, most uninteresting jobs. That is an example of someone who is who is not fully free, even though they're not a slave. Um, so what I came up with the the I, the what the uh, the idea I came up with was, it was drawing on some work by Michael Otsuka, where he talks about robust self ownership. I start with the concept of self ownership. Uh, 
To be a self-owner means that no one else owns me. It doesn't necessarily mean I want to buy and sell myself, but no one else can claim me as their property. Uh, and uh, but to be a self-owner, to be a nominal self-owner, as I saw from the, you know, said for the example of the, of the former slaves dur uh, during the pre-civil rights period, uh, being a nominal self-owner is not enough because uh, people can use uh, indirect ways to force you to do their bidding. So what Michael Oksukuk talks about um, is uh, robust self-ownership, is that you're, it's robust if you actually uh, not only have the nominal right to refuse to do other things, but you have the, 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 the power. So what I, uh, uh, so, but I also find that, that um, self-ownership is too broad in other ways. It is too broad in the sense that in it, uh, uh, it, 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 uh, ownership as philosophers define it includes 11 different characteristics. And some of them are the right to all the income that you can make off of, it, uh, off of an asset or something like that. So ownership is a really complex thing. So I narrow down self-ownership. I start with the concept and I broaden it by using Michael Otsuka's idea of effective self-ownership, but then I narrow it in other ways by getting down to what are the control aspects of self-ownership to control your life. So you either have effective power to control your interactions with other people. Effective control self-ownership. That's how I define freedom. There's a whole chapter on it in my book, so this is a pretty brief explanation. Now, that's also another word for it is independence. And... Uh, or one phrase for it that I that I use for it is freedom as the power to say no. To say no, I'm not going to do your bidding. And one of the reasons that I, I define it this way, and I think it's so important, it ties up back together with this idea of basic income, that I've been increasingly concerned about the freedom aspect and the unconditional aspects about basic income. So what we do, it's not really just blacks after the civil rights movement who are unfree from doing the worst jobs there are, but it is anyone who doesn't have enough access to the resources they need to survive. If you lack the access, you, uh, lack the access to resources you need to survive, then you effectively have to work for somebody who does. That person uh, is, could be a wealthy person, could be an employer, could be, and you might not necessarily work for them in the sense of getting a job for them. You might be, take them on as a client and so called, and, and then call yourself self-employed. But that's not what I'm, self-employed is not what I mean by independent access to the resources you need to survive. And you might also be working for the government. You could work for a polyp or you're still unfree. Uh, in the sense, you're unfree in the sense that you, you are legally put into a situation where you cannot legally use the resources of the earth to keep yourself alive. The only thing you can do is find someone who controls those resources of the earth and, let, and, and get their permission to access them, which you could do by begging uh, or by eating their garbage if they throw anything away. But most often, that's going to, or you could do it by marrying them. If they're, you're going to find a property owner who's willing to marry. But most often, that's going to be you going to work for them. So my argument is that people, the vast majority of us, are unfree in this sense that 
we have to go to someone with sufficient property to get access to the resources we need to produce the food, shelter, and clothing that we need to survive. So one of the arguments, one of the arguments in uh, my, my book, Freedom is the Power to Say No, is that, is that um, if we want to really respect people's status as free people, we need to have some kind of universal program like basic income that gives them access to enough resources either to meet their needs on their own or to buy the things that they need on their own. And I argue that in the society that we live in now, it is much more practical to give people a basic income unconditionally for everyone um, in order to help them maintain this independence. We begin by respecting everyone. We respect your independence and we're gonna build a community. We're gonna build a community, but we're gonna build a community based on the voluntary participation of people that we give them good reason to join us without instead of the way we're doing it now which is we give them a real we'll give them we we give them really really harsh negative reasons if you don't join us you will be eating you will be living on the street and eating food out of dumpsters that's what we do now and what i'm arguing is if we want to really have a society of free people and free interactions of people we need to have a base where everybody is assured they can meet their own needs on their own through a basic income or some similar policy. And then anything we want them to do and join in, we ask them voluntarily. We can give them incentives by higher pay and luxuries, or we can give them other kinds of incentives, such as respect and other things. But whatever we do, we're going to make a community based on the voluntary participation of all industries. Um, would you say that economic slavery would be a good way of characterizing the position a lot of people find themselves in today, like these, these people who are effectively forced to uh, exchange their labor uh, in order to survive. Uh, do you think economic slavery is too strong of a label or do you think it, it's effective? It, it's necessary. Well, it's not one that it's not one that I use, but I, I wouldn't tell a person who does use that as, as wrong. I, I don't quite want to use the word slavery because Slavery, especially in American context, refers to one very specific and horrific institution. Actually, if you look at if you look at slavery throughout history, uh, there are very few instances of slavery that are as bad as the way it got at the end of the slave period in places like the United States and, 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 and Cuba and Brazil, the last countries that get rid of slavery, uh, really had the harshest, toughest forms of slavery. You'd be much better off being a slave in ancient Rome, uh, where anybody could fall into debt and be a slave, and they didn't really look at them as inferiors, just people had to run a bad luck. Uh, so, and then you have all these different kinds of slavery, you know, all these different kinds of unfreedom. Take uh, a member of uh, the emperor's uh, uh, the emperor's harem in China during the imperial period. Uh, these were exceedingly wealthy women uh, who were but were unfree to leave the to to unfree to leave their job, uh, but uh, unfree to leave their job and had to have sex with the the king if he wanted to, which 
which for some of them would be very rarely since he would have um, have hundreds, sometimes thousands of, of people in his harem. But yet they had they had ultimate luxuries and and all kinds of servants. Uh, those. But now that is a form of slavery and that is a form of unfreedom. It's so different. And there's so many kinds a, a battered wife can be an unfree person. So many different people can be unfree. It's not a competition. There, yes, some slaveries are worse than others. Some forms of unfreedom are worse than others. Uh, so when I'm saying that the low class in the world today, uh, or in the United States today, is unfree, I don't mean they're the same as the slaves were before the Civil War. Uh, things got better. Uh, to be a black person, to be a black person in in the pre-civil rights era was, was horrible, but uh, in most of the U.S., it was hor- you were horribly unfree, but you were an awful lot better than a slave, and you're better off now after the civil rights movement, but you're still not fully free. So I'm not worried about say- saying, oh, this is, this is like slavery. It's just not fully free. And it's everywhere and always wrong to create a society where you, where you, don't, people, you don't treat people as free and independent individuals. We've got to start respecting other people's independence. There have been societies in history that have, and we're not doing it now. Just before we move on, I'm, I'm curious about, so like a, a very common uh, conception of um, freedom, at least in the philosophical sense, is that's positive and negative. Um, where, you know, uh, negative freedom is kind of freedom from interference and positive freedom kind of relates to your capacity as an individual to lead a life of your own choosing. Is there some mapping um, from scalar and status freedom to these, to um, positive and negative freedom? Like intuitively, I think scalar freedom might be more, could be, is analogous to um, negative freedom and positive freedom could be tied to status? No, no, no. there's no analogy. There's no analogy there. It's actually really very different. Um, um, All right. Negative, okay, this, this idea of negative and positive freedom um, are uh, contentious claims in philosophy. Uh, even whether there is a distinction between negative and positive freedom is controversial in philosophy. Some philosophers insist there is a coherent distinction. Others insist that there is not. Let me try to define the two. Negative freedom is freedom from interference by other people. Positive freedom is the freedom to do whatever one might want, the freedom from all barriers. Now, all forms of freedom, there's this formula that a lot of philosophers, all forms of freedom is the freedom for someone from some constraint to do something. So who's who's free? What constraints are they free from? And when, what are they free to do? So, uh, negative freedom is usually defined as a person who is free from constraints imposed by other people from doing whatever they might want to do. Um, now, but, uh, but, and they might then say positive freedom is a person who's freed from all barriers um, to do whatever they might want to do. Um, so that means, and that second one, you can see how that's a wider concept. You can say, well, um, uh, um, so in a, in a negative sense, let's say, uh, let's say, uh, a person, uh, a person with no legs, um, is 
are they unfree to walk or are they just unable to walk but not unfree? Well, in a negative sense, you have to ask them, why don't you have legs? Well, if you say, okay, I was born without legs, um, then you're not unfree to walk. In this negative sense, no one is prohibiting you from walking. So you're not unfree to walk. You're just unable to walk. Uh, now, in the but in the positive sense, you are unfree. Um, and but in the but if you say, well, I don't have legs because um, uh, a car ran over my legs when I was a child uh, and destroyed them, and that's why I can't walk. So you're in the exact same position as this other person with no legs. Neither of you can walk, but this person. His being unable to walk is a result of interference by that driver who ran over his legs. Uh, so that is what people mean by negative freedom. Um, the problem with negative freedom is that just about any... Uh, uh, we, we're, we live in a world of, of seven or eight billion people, and we're all in each other's way. Uh, we're all we're always doing things to affect other people. To say that you have negative freedom when you're in a world where there are seven billion people interfering with you, uh, what what you're free to do, what you're not, uh, what you're not free to do, to to say that you that you have negative freedom, it always winds up be saying, okay, well, we're 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 not interfering with your negative freedom when you say, um, uh, like, stay over here, saying, well, look. You've, um, I want you to leave me alone so that I can enjoy negative freedom. But then you got to say, well, if you're forcing me to leave you alone, then if you're forcing me to leave you alone, you're harming my negative freedom. Uh, so you know, two people want to be in the same place at the same time. Uh, one of them has to interfere with the other one. Uh, and it's thoughts like these that lead people to think that negative freedom is incoherent. Now, I am not hugely wedded to this concept of negative freedom. However, it is the one that I use. And I use it for a simple reason that uh, the philosopher Thomas Poga argued for. Uh, it was, uh, uh, he's got some bad personal issues, but some of his philosophy is actually rather good. Uh, and Thomas Poga argues that we simply have a stronger reason to change our behavior if you can say this bad thing that happened to this other person is because I interfered with them or we as a group interfered with them. Then we have a stronger reason than if it just happened. Maybe we should help both guys with no legs. But if you're the guy who ran over the guy with no legs and it's your fault, you were interfered with him and, and, and made it so he can't walk, you have a really strong responsibility to get this guy some prosthetics. Uh, and whereas if, you know, when you're in a world with millions of people with no legs and it's, it's, it's not because of your interference, your reason seems to be less strong. And this is why I stress negative freedom and that Effective control self-ownership I build up as an entirely negative concept that when you are, when, that people naturally, uh, uh, healthy, able-bodied people naturally are, uh, are capable of meeting their own needs 
given access to the resources of the earth. We are all evolved to live on this planet. We are all capable of getting our own food, shelter, and clothing using nothing but the resources of this planet. We're not trained to do so. If you put us down in a lush jungle with lots of opportunities to do this, most of us aren't going to know how to do it. We weren't trained. That's just because we weren't trained to by our parents. Our parents trained us for the context in which we live when that wasn't an opportunity. But maybe if we all had the opportunity to be subsistence farmers, and we all had the opportunity to be hunter-gatherers, we would all be trained in this. So it's actually, and also, um, the one thing we're definitely none of we're we're definitely unfree we would definitely be able to do is is we could definitely live with a group of people of our own choosing and so we're interfering with you to say you can't go and be a subsistence farmer by yourself and we're inter interfering with you when you're we're saying you can't go and be and be a uh and, and be a hunter-gatherer by yourself. But we're also interfering with you when you say these 12 people or these 50 people, none of whom is a property owner, is allowed to start their own cooperative, start their own, uh, start their own subsistence farm, start a business, start all, all of these things that we could do if, if we had access to resources. We are being interfered with. Our negative freedom is what mean is what is putting us in the position where we have to work for the people who control property. When you take the resources of the earth and you say the government owns this portion and private pr private owners own this portion and this huge amount of people own nothing, that means those people have to work for the government or for one of the many property property owners, not because of nature, but because of interference by the particular way that we've decided to divide the earth into property. We took the earth that we're all evolved to live in and we divided it up, but we didn't give everybody a share. That's, that is a, a completely inconsistent with not only freedom, but equality before the law. Uh, if we're going to divide the earth, we've got to divide it in some way that recognizes people as equally evolved to live here and equal claim to use these resources to further our life. So if some people are going to say, I get more, then they should provide a service for those who get less. And that's one of the justifications for basic income. If you want to say, I'm going to be a big property owner, all this property, great, good for you. Start your business, run what your business is, but you owe some taxes back and those taxes are going to go to everyone else. You got to make sure it's enough that people can live on so they don't become effectively your forced servant. Yeah, so this conception, so our conceptions of property rights and the way they take shape in our lives has a tremendous impact for whether or not we can lead the lives, whether or not we can leave lives of our own choosing. Um, and over the past couple of years, you've written um, a couple of books um, that really dive into the, the issues with uh, our conceptions of property rights and the myths uh, that underpin them and how they might not be as justified as uh, was previously uh, once thought. Um, so what was the spark for these books? How did you, I mean, I, I guess it kind of makes sense if you're diving into, if you're framing, um, if you're exploring ideas relating to justice and uh, one's capacity just to live in the world, um, uh, freely, uh, I, looking into property rights uh, seems to make a bit of sense. But it's it's funny that 
as someone who, with a huge interest in UBI, there's there's really no mention of UBI in these books, is there? It, it's perhaps like once or twice, uh, just a handful of times um, uh, throughout the books, but it, it's it's mainly just a, 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 that dives into the problems with conceptions of property uh, and the philosophical bases for these um, in the in Western philosophy. Yeah, well, the two books you're talking about, uh, uh, for the benefit of your your uh, listeners and viewers, uh, are uh, Prehistoric Myths in Modern Political Philosophy. That's the first one. And uh, and The Prehistory of Private Property. That's the second one that just came out this year. Uh, this, is, this, this, this project had several, uh, several sparks sort of came together to create this project. Uh, and I, it's not something that, that I, I uh, in retrospect, it's not something that I would have planned. I just sort of fell into it. It took years. Um, but what one of the sparks was a skepticism about social contract theory and the, and the arguments that social contract theory relies on. Um, not all social contract theorists do, but the ones in the Lockean and most of the ones in the Lockean and Hobbesian traditions are saying that state is justified, government is justified because everybody's better off than they their ancestors were before we had states. I'm like, well, how could anybody possibly know this? Um, everybody? So the homeless person, you're talking about the homeless person today is better off than, uh, than our ancestors were 10,000 years ago as hunter-gatherers. Well, when Hobbes and Locke, uh, when Hobbes and Locke were in a racist society and thought the lowliest civilized man was clearly better than the naked savage, it was really easy for them to believe that yeah, the day labor in England would be better off than uh, a, a, a king of a Native American community with all these naked savages to to uh, to perform for, to perform whatever for them, but. Um, uh, but now that we've given up those racist beliefs or trying to free ourselves from them, uh, I've got to think about, well, what do we actually know? So to say this, and people even, they portray this as obvious. It's so oh, obvious that the lowliest person in our society is better off than uh, natives were 10 or 20,000 years ago. Well, how well do you know? People, all the people, those millions of people around the world, maybe billions who make this claim, how much do they know about what it's like to be the lowliest person in their country? Do you know what it's like to uh, live in the sweatshops with might have made our clothing? I don't, I don't know where our clothing comes from, but I know a lot of the stuff we buy comes from sweatshops around the world. They're part of our community, the people who work there. What are their lives like? Do you know? Um, what is the life of a homeless person in the United States like? A, 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 a homeless person in a really bad Situation. What are the lives uh, of a migrant laborer um, in in our communities? What are these lives like? And most people don't know. Uh, they don't have any. Certainly, don't have firsthand experience. And they know even less. Or well, what are native peoples who live outside of state authority? What are their lives like? Uh, nobody has firsthand experience in that, unless you're an anthropologist or. Um, and so they're talking about something that they're arguing on the belief that it's obvious when it clearly is not obvious. And so I was thinking along this, well, you know, actually, what would be sort of the ideal situation that you could live in in a, in, uh, 
in uh, a non-state society. I can imagine, you know, um, living on a beach in Hawaii and, uh, and you know, fishing and surfing all day. And uh, uh, most people in Polynesia weren't able to do that because they had chiefs telling them what to do. But some people in Polynesia live lives kind of like that. Uh, so that was one spot. Can I just j- just ask a quick question? Uh, what do we think of as the state? Um, how where where does the state begin and where does it end? Uh, because you know, I think that we have the countries, the nation states. Like that's quite an obvious uh, understanding of the state. But when I think of um, stateless societies, I do still see them ex- as existing as societies, and that there is some. Um, it, there's a rule of law, but that law might not be made explicit. It may be implicit in the way social interactions occur. And there are just some, uh, there are some things that are permissible and some that are not, and they are just socially determined, um, by, you know, just by virtue of the nature of the interactions and evolution of this, of this, um, society. So I'm, I'm, but I, I I struggle to understand where that line is is kind of drawn because you could say that the tribes in the Amazonian rainforest they may actually we could consider those tribes as quasi states because if you if someone does not um, adhere to the, the 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 strictures or the the social codes that they that that are necessary for the state for, for the society to survive. They may get punished and you know be done away with, fed to the fed to the rainforest, the animals within. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious about what actually, how do we think of the state? Uh, how, how is it discussed or um, framed in uh, in these discussions? Okay, so your um, your uh, your question led I you know your question was about what sparked it, which kind of led me further into yeah. the first book. That I wanted to the uh, uh, prehistoric yeah. myths and modern political philosophy, uh, and now your question is getting us further in there. So we're actually rather than looking at the sparks, we're actually looking fairly deeply at prehistoric myths and modern political philosophy. What uh, the there were a couple of other sparks. One and one was that I I I met a philosopher. Uh, no, sorry, I, I'm the philosopher. I met uh, an anthropologist named Grant S. McCall that was working on some similar ideas, and we ended up pooling our research. So we got one philosopher and one uh, and one anthropologist. So it's not me dabbling in anthropology, and it's not him dabbling in philosophy, but it's the two of us going at it. So we've got good knowledge of both sides. And in this book, the Prehistor- prehistoric myths and modern political philosophy, uh, which was uh, supposed to cover more, it covers this. One idea that has been proposed for uh, been proposed to justify both the state and the property rights system, and that idea is this one I was talking about: how supposedly everybody's better off in a state society and/or in a society with a private property rights system than everybody is in a non-state society that has a common property regime. By a common property regime. I mean one where no one owns the land, but anyone can use the land. You can hunt, gather, you can be nomadic, but you can't just stay in one place and say, this is mine forever. That's a commons. Uh, of course, a commons can be actually one where, where, uh, where, you, where you live in one place for a while. But anyway, that's, uh, that's getting... Uh, okay, so now your question was, are these societies quasi-states? 
And that actually, that question is getting us deeply into this social contract idea. A social contract is a very complex idea. It has roots going all the way back to Socrates. Uh, but really, it comes into Western philosophy in a big way with Thomas Hobbes. And what he is talking about a social contract is its definition is the establishment of, of a state society and a state being a society with a sovereign government where there's one unified authority in that society and all the other authorities are authorized and subject to that one authority. Now, he thought a king would be the best thing to be that one authority, but he did recognize that the authority could be democratic. The authority could be an elected assembly, and that's still that one authority on top. But what it is, is that we you have the final say. So in the United States, and uh, I understand with, with your Washminster system in Australia, it works pretty similarly, we have power split between an elected president, an elected Congress, and a Supreme Court that's appointed by the other two branches. Uh, and these branches, neither none of those branches are on top, but together, the, whatever together they make sovereignty. That there is a final say. Our governments are capable of saying this is the final ruling on this issue. You're free to do that. Oh no, you're not free to do that. That you can go to jail for. Oh, that that you're unfree to do. You're not going to go to jail for it. But you got to pay somebody recompense for that. The government makes those decisions. And the exceptions to that are basically are people who get away with crimes. Um, and so the exceptions to that are actually pretty small. Um, and so that's what the idea of sovereignty is. And what, what, what Hobbes is saying is that the, state of con the, st the social contract is the establishment of sovereignty. And the absence of it is what he calls the state of nature. But... That's not the only way you can define the social contract. Uh, you could also define the social contract in the sense of morality. You can think of, you could, um, and it is an imaginary contract. It's not a real, uh, well, some people think it's real, but it's certainly unwritten. Uh, so you can imagine a contract where people get together and say, okay, we're all going to create a state um, and the state's got to benefit us all. Um, and that's, Kind of what Hobbes is. Hobbes is saying you're really bad off in the state of nature because there's no authority to punish stuff. But once you get a sovereign, this single authority on top of the whole pyramid of everything, this authority, that makes you better off. So you would, if you were actually making an agreement, you would agree to create the state. And that's why it's called a social contract. Now, but you could also imagine morality. Um, uh, imagine a world with no morality and then a world with morality, and say, well, we're all better off in the world with morality, therefore I should be a moral person. Um, so that's another use of the social contract. Um, and then there's a third use of the social contract to say you could imagine a world where we didn't have society, where we all lived on our own with no interaction between people, um, except I guess you'd have briefly Men and women have sex so we could reproduce, but then, uh, and, and, and uh, somebody take care of kids, I guess that'd be the way, I don't know. Well, you can imagine it, you know, it's just whatever you want to imagine, this world without society. 
Uh, and you can imagine, well, we'd be pretty bad off in that. So we can imagine signing a contract to create society. Um, and um, all three of those types of contracts are different. However, Hobbes thought that that the other two conditions would fall would follow from the state because what he believed that those indigenous naked savages were so badly off without without um uh sovereignty to keep them in awe that um they couldn't create society because they were all fighting all the time he thought uh and that they had no morality because he thought morality was really just following the law in your society uh it's very unusual view of morality. But that's what, so he thought all of these things came together. Uh, but the one that he said was causal was sovereignty. Now, uh, that's really not, it turns out, it's really not true. And, and it is kind of muddled thinking about the social contract ever since. A lot of people do understand that these are actually three different ways of thinking of the social contract, and they really have very different meanings. And they don't, follow flow from each other. So the people you're talking about, not what we call non-state societies, do they have morality and they have society. They have lots of social interaction with other people. In those two senses, they have a social contract. But they do not have a social contract in the sense of agreeing to obey any authority whatsoever. Uh, if you if you live with a, a, a truly non-state, nomadic, hunter-gatherer society, uh, as living people have, there are they're getting rarer and rarer. But states, but but uh, groups that live outside of state authority, uh, even if they're we consider some state owns this territory, very often in places like Brazil or Papua New Guinea. Um, People do not. Uh, the state really doesn't have full authority in some remote areas. Um, so people in states like this uh, make no commitment to obey any authority at any time. Um, it Usually when they disagree, they split up. We're, they're nomads anyway, so it's really easy to split up. You have a fight, you pick up your stuff and you, you walk a mile down the road, you camp there. Maybe it's you and your family. Maybe it's you and some friends. Maybe maybe it's you all by yourself, and you got to go find some other group to join eventually. Um, so they have, and 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 there is no agreed procedure. If somebody refuses to do that, you're like, look, we don't want to camp with you anymore. Go camp somewhere else by yourself. And they refuse to do that, or they and they maybe do violence to somebody in your group. There's no agreed procedure of how to go about that. Um, they just fight it out. Um, and societies are stable. You sometimes do get circles of revenge where, okay, this guy killed that guy. So somebody from his family killed him, but then somebody from his family killed them. Sometimes that will happen. It's not a perfect society, but it's also not, uh, most of these societies are not horribly violent. They might be equivalent to a dangerous U.S. city or sometimes a little bit worse than that, but not really uh, usually not to the level of violence um, that we that we saw, like say during World War II, uh, or um, uh, or during the uh, uh, during during major conflicts like that. Um, so you you do get societies that have the absence of sovereignty, and 
you find that they're decent places to live. And we and you look at, in many ways, people in those societies are freer and happier than, than the lowliest people in our society. So by looking at these, and Grant and I compare the lives of people in these non-state societies with the lowliest people, the homeless, the sweatshop worker, and other people at the bottoms of our, uh, the battered woman, other people at the bottoms of our society, and find that, there are people in all of our societies today that if they were given a choice between joining a nomadic hunter-gatherer band and remaining in their society or growing up in their society, they would be better off to choose the nomadic hunter-gatherer band. We failed in this basic idea of what's supposed to justify our society through this imaginary social contract to make sure everybody's better off by making sure that they're protected and safe and live a decent life. We have failed in that. And, and, and that means we failed in the mutual advantage. That's a core tenet in a lot of political philosophy that you know, the justification for the state is that all of its citizens, regardless of status or whatever, can live a, a dignified life. Yes. And, and you have lots and lots of people saying, oh yeah, we've done that easy. Well, ever since Hobbes, that's been the that, that's been the method of saying, oh, yeah, we've done it. Yeah, easy. Make everybody better off. Those naked savages are so horribly off that uh, we're all better off. We don't even have to worry about that. No, they are not. We, we are not. We do not make people better off. Yeah, so that's, I think what, I, I, I don't blame Tobbs and Locke uh, or a lot of these old philosophers in a way for some of their positions just because they they just did not know as, as much. Like they, they didn't have the theory of evolution or... Uh, you know, an understanding of just our, our history as a species. I mean, what what was it? Uh, solitary, brutish, and short. I, I don't think any humans lived a solitary existence, or if they did, they died very quickly. So, yeah, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short uh, is is uh, Hobbes's phrase. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And and solitary was actually the worst of all. These there is nowhere in the human lineage that connects us seven million years ago that connects us with our nearest our nearest relatives the the bonobos and the chimpanzees uh there's nowhere in all those different species the hominin species we go through from being them to us there is no period where we live like orangutans that are actually do live by themselves most of their lives um we're um there uh, and and a human being is incapable of living outside of society. Um, if you take a child and and uh, if you take a child and try to live them without socializing them, uh, the child will die. Even if you uh, somehow uh, are able to provide it with food and, and and shelter and clothing in some way, the child will die without without the rest of society. There are no. Uh, and and if you actually go to indigenous societies that are stateless, you find people are all up in each other's business. Um, they've got they they travel with their fifty closest friends. Uh, if you're a nomadic hunter gatherer band, you're traveling with them all the time, and they're really interested in what you're up to. It's society. It's it's much less alienating than society is for a lot of us. And I say, is that um, now? I say, if you have a now now now. People very often, when they hear this, they think what I'm saying, we're wrong to say all of us are better off. When, we, when, when Grant and I say that, people say, ah, so you're saying we were all better off 10,000 years ago. No, I'm saying 
It is false to say all of us are better off. That is falsified when at least one of us is worse off. And it's actually a lot more than one. But I would say today, maybe the average person is better off. It's hard, it's hard to judge because we're better off in some ways and worse off in others. But a substantial number of people in the world today are worse off. And we have some where some people are clearly better off and another people are worse off. Then instead of having a society based on mutual advantage, we have a parasitic society. That's what we have in the world today. A one that one that makes the privileged people better off at the expense of the disadvantaged people, a parasitic society. We need to rectify that. And that's that's why basic income comes up only on the last page of uh, of prehistoric myths. Uh, only on the last page when we talk about that as a possible way to rectify this wrong of having a parasitic society. I'm, I'm really curious about how you compared, like how do you determine whether or not uh, how well off someone is? Were you taking, um, you know, health measures and yeah, mental, physical health? Um, was there a, a component of freedom here? How did you evaluate uh, the differences uh, between societies and, and the worst off in those societies? Well, we look at a lot of factors. Uh, we look at, uh, I mean, one of, the, one, of the obvious, uh, one of the obvious ones, of course, is life expectancy. Uh, life expectancy is much higher in contemporary societies today uh, than, it, than it is in any indigenous community. Uh, however, living long is not all there is to living. Uh, and it's not necessarily what makes us most happy. Um, the, and as a matter of fact, most of the, most of the, uh, most of the increase in our lifespan is actually caused by a decline in infant mortality, which did not really begin in a big way until, until about 1800. It started gradually after 1800 that our that our life expectancy began to rise. So when Hobbes was writing the line, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, the society that he lived in had a lower life expectancy than a lot of indigenous communities. The ones that he described as nasty, brutish, and short. Um, and, uh, and so state societies and property rights-based societies have not, are, are really, uh, not all of them, and most of them have not had longer life expectancies. We do now. Um, however, most of that is from infant mortality, um, and it's something that people just uh, grow to accept. We're actually only, if you look at the age of senescence of, pe uh, of people, the age when you start to decline for old age, uh, that's only increased by about 10% uh, in, in the entire history of medicine. It's only increased by about 10%. Uh, we've done good at extending people, having them live longer while they're declining, which has some benefit, but also has a lot of side effects if you're in a lot of pain and lower quality of life. Um, and we've done better at getting people up to that level, but we actually haven't increased life. So this idea that we're on the verge of we're on the verge of uh, creating people that are going to live to be 200, <laughs> we've only increased really increased lifespans 10%. We're a long way from that. Um, somebody's going to have to come up with a really new idea. Now, so we live longer, but we're not really healthier. 
we have this idea that we're so much healthier because we have all of this medical care. But actually, the medical care that we have is mostly fixing problems that our society has created. Cancer is not is almost non-existent without the toxins and the other things that we have in modern society. Uh, uh, cancer, heart disease, did not exist. Does not exist among uh, among indigenous peoples living living in stateless societies. Um, many uh, uh, malnutrition, all, all sorts of problems that we have simply created. Most of our disease, and even even a disease like COVID, COVID is unless it was created in a lab. COVID is created by the interaction of humans and animals, and then spreads in dense human situations. Uh, when you have people who don't have livestock, who only hunt animals, uh, they they hunt animals. And then they they cook them and eat them and don't live with them. You don't get people catching diseases from animals, where a lot of our diseases come from. Uh, and when you have them living at that low population density, they're not spreading. So epidemics are not a big problem. Epidemics are a problem of uh, dense state societies. That's why so many native peoples in Australia, Africa, and the Americas died when Westerners got there uh, because they brought their zoonotic diseases. Uh, so in health, actually, health is maybe a wash. Then we look at things like freedom. Uh, in, a, in a negative sense, you are so much freer in, uh, uh, in a nomadic hunter-gatherer society than you are in contemporary society. And, and, and there's just not people giving you orders. You don't like the way this group's doing? doing go off and join another group or go off with your couple of your best friends and go live with them. Uh, do it the way you want, the way you want to do it. You have uh, tremendous uh, sexual, uh, sexual and gender and uh, gender freedom. Uh, a lot of indigenous societies, stateless societies, recognize transgender people and recognize uh, one form of same-sex marriage or another. Uh, and you also very often have greater freedom of women um, who are not perfect equals everywhere. But in a lot of nomadic hunter-gatherer societies, they're an awful lot closer to, to equality than in uh, most state societies. Uh, and also more free from violence. Rape and rape and uh, domestic abuse are sadly side effects of privacy. It's really hard to rape a woman when everybody lives in tents. It's hard to beat your wife when you live in a tent and there's another tent right next to yours. Um, and people will stop you and prevent you from that. Uh, and it's it's hard to treat a woman that way when she can just get up and join the next tribe. Um, so so in a lot of ways, uh, in a lot of ways, um, uh, uh, people in in the the loosest, smallest, most stateless societies we know are better off than uh, than many people in society today. So our, a lot of our well-being, especially within the 21st century, is dependent upon property, our ability to uh, buy things, to earn money, and to claim ownership over that money, to own land, to um, lay claim to some object or some something. Um, and from what I understand, it has generally been thought that there is some 
natural right to property. Um, and that might not be the case. So could you first describe what we mean by natural? Um, because it's a, it's an, un, I don't know, the more I'm learning, the more weird I get with just understanding words that I thought I, I actually understood. Um, so what has, what's, what's been the evolutionary, or what's been the historical conception of property rights at, in political philosophy? And um, why might these conceptions be built upon um, an empirical house of cards? Yeah, well, yeah, the natural right to private property um, is is an uh, is the idea. That's one of the ideas that we bunk, debunk in the second anthropology book, Grant and I. So the first one is really all about this one thing that we're all better off in a society that has private property and or a state. Um, and then the second book looks at three other claims: the claim that uh, the claim that equality is impossible, or at least that it's in conflict with freedom. The idea that um, that capitalism is more consistent with negative freedom than any other system. And the idea that there's some natural right to private property. Uh, natural rights theory is, the, the, uh, is one way of looking at morality. Uh, people... Uh, sometimes think, well, if you don't believe in rights, you're against morality. And that's not true. Mor rights are one way of conceiving morality. Uh, I'm a moral person because I respect people's rights. Um, is one way to say I'm a moral person. Another way to say, well, I don't know, what rights do they have? Another, maybe a, a moral person is to treat other people with equal concern and respect and listen to their perspective. And it's not about deciding what rights are or not. But, um, but but the idea, so the idea of a natural right to private property is already using this rights idea that there are natural rights that we can discover by reason. If we think about what a person truly needs, then we can come up with a natural right. Some of these are like no-brainers. All right. We should all agree that it's a natural right for a person not to be killed randomly by other people. Um, uh, that if somebody just wants to kill you for fun... Uh, not in self-defense or anything. They just want to kill you for fun. They're violating your natural right to life. Uh, and that's I, that I think is a perfectly reasonable, uh, whether you whether it's best to call that a natural right or to call it something else, uh, I'm a little on the fence on. But this says something that there's something is plausible about this idea of, of natural right. So they're, they're in a way self, they're self-evident. Yes, yeah, um, self-evident to anybody who really sits down and thinks about it. And uh, of course, then uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, the U.S. Declaration of Independence uh, draws on draws on this when it says it uh, draws on the idea of natural. So we said we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, actually, they're drawing on John Locke, whose three rights were life, liberty, and property. John Locke, then, is trying to say that property, along with, with um, life, which that's the no-brainer, then liberty, which is really vague, uh, what exactly you mean, the devil could be in the details about what you mean by liberty, but then he puts in property. And what Locke is saying is that we all naturally want property. 
that everybody wants to claim things. You want to go out there in the natural world and you want to claim stuff and say, this is mine. It is only mine. It belongs to me. I need it to further my projects, whatever I'm working on. I got to have this. I got to have security of this. I want it. So I'm going to go out and claim things. And then he wants to say, and then he, say, he says that's natural. That is what people do. And then we've got to look at, well, when is it just to claim things? He says, well, he says, well, if you mix your labor with it, if you say, uh, uh, if you say find a, a stick and you haven't done anything with it, you can't really say I own that. But if you take that stick and you sharpen it into a spear, that's your stick, um, which has some plausibility if there are a whole bunch of sticks around and this is the only one that's made into a spear. Um, well, it's made into a spear because it's yours. It sounds quite reasonable to say that's yours. And what? And so he calls that appropriation, original appropriation. And he, and he gives that right, not just to things we find, but also to land. That if you are the first person to go out and clear land and then to clear land and uh, uh, and farm it, you're then improving the land. You're giving it greater value. It wasn't that valuable as a forest or whatever. But once you cleared it and planted crops on it, you made it so it yields so much more useful food for human beings. Uh, and maybe you took that trees and made them into a cabin or something. He's saying that should be yours. And that is what humans naturally do. Humans want to take want to take the resources of the earth, mix their labor with them, and make it into private property and call it their own. And that if we all think hard enough, if we all use our reason, we're all going to come to this conclusion. Yeah, that's a right. I have a right to what's mine. You have a right to what's yours. And we all have a right to trade them. And trading that is going to create inequality. Well, that's okay, because we're all going to be better off because trading is good for people. Property is good for people. Well, that's the idea we debunked in the first book. Well, actually, we don't all get better off. But, uh, but what he's arguing then is that private property is a natural right. He's not, the argument is not that every owner in the world today can trace his land back to the first guy to mix his labor with the land, to clear the land and stuff, and that there's never been any injustice in that. That's not what he's saying. He's, of course, admitting there's been a lot of injustice. But him and people who follow him that I call propertarians because they're so concerned about the right to private property, sometimes they call themselves conservatives, sometimes they call themselves libertarians, anarcho-capitalists, there's a bunch of other people who share these sorts of beliefs about property. And even a lot of people that are skeptical about property concede this idea that, it, uh, at least concede this idea that's a natural right. But this natural right to private property, is it? real? Is it really, is this what people want to do? Now, the way that people usually criticize the idea of a natural right to property is to say there simply isn't one. They're saying it's not moral to go and, and clear the land and appropriate land and say it's my private property. And they will criticize it that way. And that's one legitimate way to criticize it. But what they do, what these critics... Yeah, I mean, I, for me, it just, it seems like it's... Sorry, I just seems so um, anthropocentric. And, you know, we are these transcendent, um, amazing spe uh, animals who can just lay claim to, to regions of land or things that are homes to so many other organisms. And that 
because I have done something. I have complete legitimate total claim to this. It just kind of strikes me as incredibly unjust. Well, that's a moral moral criticism of it. And I think the moral criticisms of it are completely legitimate. However, when you only make this moral criticism, then you concede this ground to libertarians. Well, Well, if we believe in the right to appropriation, and we believe it's more, if there is a right to appropriation, then we have to have a private property system. Because despite all that injustice, had we had appropriation from the beginning and it wasn't that injustice, we would have a property rights system now, a private property system. So if you can find some injustices, we'll be happy to rectify those, shuffle things around. But when we're done, there's going to be rich people and there's going to be poor people because that's the natural thing, the way people want to do it. That's what appropriation leads to. And so what we're taking, the different tack we're taking, we're not questioning it from a moral base. Okay, you're saying that's what's moral. Okay, we're going to say that's what's moral. We're going to look at who did the original appropriation. What kinds of original appropriations do people tend to do? And do they tend, do these original appropriators tend to establish private property? Locke tells that story about the farmer that goes out in the woods. Is, Is that what people do? Uh, Because I could tell another story where a group of people go out to the woods together and they do it together with the and and they clear the land together with the intention of creating shared property. Or another person who is an individual goes out in the woods by themselves with the the intention of declaring themselves king of this new land. Uh, There's a story. Now we got three stories. We're always hearing this one story over and over again from the private property people. But... Uh, now I give you, I just gave you three stories. Which one's more plausible? Are any of these stories plausible? Because um, those second two don't lead to that private property rights system. If the, what people actually do when they appropriate property is more like either those second two, then you don't get a private property rights system. There's no, no, no reason to believe that there's anything natural about the private property system. So... Uh, Grant McCall and I look at what are what are people what are systems like that don't have private property and what are systems like that have sort of quasi property and how do we get from a world where we know that 10 20,000 years ago there was no private property the world was a commons you could hunt and gather on it but you couldn't claim it we know that's what it was like for the first 200,000 years that that full humans were on this planet uh, and then property rights start to develop. With this, was this natural right in waiting all this time? Um, what what happens now? First of all, when when things was like the Locke's criteria was mixing your labor with the land, but there's a lot of other other people who are uh, essentially Lockeans that reject that criteria and say, well, it's just first claim or it's first use um, or it, it, uh, first claim, first use, something like that. What, whatever these. Uh, criteria could be there, slightly different, but uh, so when you uh, when you look at nomadic hunter gatherers, um, as I've said, they treat the entire earth as a commons. Often, often it's an open commons in the sense that anyone can hunt and gather in here. You don't even have to be a member of our band or our tribe. There are other hunter gatherers who treat the land as sort of a closed commons. Well, uh, this land. Anybody in our tribe can come to this land, but if this next tribe comes over here, they better ask permission or we're going to fight. Um, in that sense, not all hunter-gatherers is not a completely open commons, but it is one that is that extends that that commons is 
owned. It's owned by the community as whole. And even fine, okay, well, that's, and, and, and a Lockean can say, well, that's the land. They don't mix the labor with the land. They only hunt on the land. Well, first of all, I'm not sure that's really true because uh, that they don't change the land by mixing their labor with it because hunter-gatherers have killed off a lot of predators. Uh, the saber-toothed tiger, the uh, 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 the woolly rhinoceros, uh, 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 all kinds of animals have been killed off by human beings. Uh, that very much alters the land. That could qualify as, as uh, uh, ridding the land of a dangerous predator might be a stupid thing to do. It might turn out to be a stupid thing to do, but it's certainly a change of the land more than growing crops for one season and then that they could easily grow back. So uh, they do alter the land and even the other goods that they have. When you have when you're in an indigenous when you're in a stateless nomadic hunter-gatherer tribe, not no, settled hunter-gatherers are different, but nomadic hunter-gatherers also tend to have nothing like private property in in goods that they made. If the the rule tends to be if you want to if you want to camp with us, you got to share. Okay, you kill this big game. If it's just, if you kill this game, if the game is just enough for you and your family, then okay, then it's yours. Okay. But if there's enough to share, you must share. You cannot say, oh no, I'm going to cure this meat and keep it for my family uh, for later on. I'm not going to share it with you guys. Get your own meat and cure that. You cannot do that. They will not let you. So you, you you don't ever get to camp with us again. You can't be a part of the society if you won't share like that. Uh, and even other things, if you've got two spears and another guy doesn't, or if you have a spear that you're not using because you're doing something else, you have to share that. Sharing is mandatory. So there's really no respect for these societies by the people who have the, really the best claim to be, to be, uh, to be the original appropriators. And then if you say, okay, well, if you've really got to be a farmer to be original appropriators, then the book would go on to the, we go on to uh, the oldest known farming communities, which were Swidden agriculturalists who went out to the woods, like Locke said, but not as an individual, like Locke said. They went out in groups of several hundred people, usually, cleared the land together, burned the trees and stuff together to create a nice mulch for the soil. And then everybody got a plot, but nobody got ownership of that plot. This season, this season, you'd all plant on your plot. Then during the off season, maybe animals would graze there and you'd all hunt on the common woods around it. Then the next season, you'd all get a plot, but it'd be another plot. Um, and getting access to the plot is not contingent and having been part of that group that helped clear the land to begin with. If you're a new person who's joined in the years that they've been on the same spot, you get the same access to a plot as everyone else. All you got to do is be a member of the group. And this kind of group agriculture, there are parallels to this in peasant communities around the world that survive into the modern era. They're not moving from place to place, but you get this idea that agriculture at the beginning, at the beginning is a joint project. There's a family farm is an extremely late development. Long before the family farm, there's this vi cooperative village agriculture where nobody really owns the land. You see this throughout Europe, 
in the Middle Ages. And you see it really throughout the world uh, in, in the same period. And it doesn't end until the enclosure movement in Europe and the colonial movement outside of Europe, which happened at the same time. That's when the, they've, they've, by this time, they've appointed lords over the peasants. And lords are saying, well, I, wanna, I want this to be my property. Uh, these are the people that appropriate. They might be the people who mix their labor with the land every day, but I'm the lord. I should get the property. That's where property, private property, uh, starts to become ubiquitous. It had begun in ancient times. It began in cities, but it began not with private acts of appropriation, but by kings and royal families saying, well, this is my private estate. That's the public things I own in the name of the people, but this is mine. And it begins from the top down, just the opposite of what the idea that there's a natural right to private property is based on. It's based on the claim that it's the bottom up and it's the government that interferes. But actually, from the bottom up, we get shared property and we get the government interfering, beginning with those ancient kings saying me and my wife and my sons and some top officials, we get some private estates. It trickles down from there. And when it finally gets to the rural lords in England, you get the enclosure movement in England and throughout Europe. You get the enclosure movement where they create private property in land throughout Europe. And at the same time, they're conquering the world and they're finding hunter-gatherers and they're finding peasant agriculturalists and they're forcing all of them to adopt this private property system where a landowner has uh, has this really strong private property. And then all those people who used to share out the land are his tenants or in later history, his workers, uh, his, his hired laborers. And then people lose their direct access to the land and then have to do whatever they can, whatever the Lord says, or whatever at least some Lord or some owner will say in order to keep themselves alive. And this was part of the motivation. When the enclosure movement and it happened in Europe, as we as we mentioned in the book, we count we we recount some of them. There a lot of people said outright, well, the reason we need to to establish lords as full owners of the land and make everyone as hired workers is to get the peasants to work more. When, they're, when, they, when the peasants control the land, they don't work so hard for us. It's hard to hire them to do the stuff we want. We'll get more labor out of them if the Lord owns the land and those people have to work for a living, uh, have to work by following the Lord's orders for the work. And it worked in the enclosure movement in Europe. It worked uh, in the colonial movement across the rest of the world and it worked when we freed the slaves. Freed the slaves, well, we'll just keep them really poor and then they'll do similar work that they did when they were slaves. Mm, and well, it's working right now as well. I, I remember just recently reading news of, in the US, um, there being labor shortages or uh, businesses are just unable to find people to uh, work for them. But then you look at like the conditions of the of the work and you're like, so what you're saying is you want to pay someone, you know, $10 an hour to work 12 hours a day, five days a week um, and earn just enough to survive. And you're surprised that no one wants to do that. You know, I, I can imagine lots of people would actually rather be homeless and do some begging and whatever than actually put themselves through such to, to live like that, to live just working um, <clears throat> in these undignified positions, uh, doing things just 
merely to to survive. Yeah, so many of our jobs are terrible jobs. Uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt said that you know if you don't want to pay, if if you don't want to pay a decent wage, we don't want your business in our country, and that's one of the reasons he gave for introducing the minimum wage. Uh, unfortunately. Uh, the minimum wage was supposed to be a living wage, but uh, they never really protected in a way to make it a living wage. Uh, but that's, I think, the wrong way to go about it. When you have an idea that we need a minimum wage and we need to raise the minimum wage up to a living wage, what you're admitting is that we've got an incentive problem that workers have an incentive to work even at below living wage levels. And that employers have an incentive to pay them below living wage levels. And when you say all we're going to do is increase the minimum wage, you're 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 admitting that we have this incentive problem. You're not really changing the incentives. You're just truncating those incentives by saying, okay, well, you have to pay this much. Uh, a better way is to look at the source of that incentive problem. That incentive problem is because workers are desperate to get a job to survive because it's the only legal way to survive. So if you give workers the opportunity to live without without selling their labor by having a basic income, you give employers to make sure that every job is a good job. How do I get this person to do this job voluntarily? Well, I got to pay them a good wage and give them good working conditions. It's got to be can make them a lot better off than they are on those basic income. You do that and you're going to get you do that and you're going to get you don't you don't really so much need uh, the the minimum wage. You get you might get a much better, uh, much better pay and better working conditions for everyone in the lower class. We could get away the horrible treatment that we have people in our meatpacking industry and our migrant laborers and so forth and so many other bad jobs that we can uh that we can uh, sit down and and uh, catalog. Yeah, we'll just put a pin in this because I really want to dive into this um, just a bit, uh, a little bit later. But I just want to go back to talking about some of the the claims or well, what what is discussed in your book. Um, one of the um, I guess key claims is that um, inequality is well, not the claims that you make, but the claims that you. Um, undermine or uh, take on is that inequality is natural and inevitable. Um, so what sort of inequality are you uh, referring to here? Because I, I think it's a it's a messy topic. And I'd just like to highlight that, like to, to ask that before we dive into it. Yeah. When you talk about inequality, um, you, uh, you know, by the way, I, I'm giving very, very long winded answers to all your questions. I, I hope that's okay. <laughs> Oh. oh yeah, no, no, don't worry at all. I mean, the longer the better. We've got time. I've got I've got plenty of time, so I'm happy to sit here as, for as long as uh, as you are willing. So, long winded is the way to go. Okay. All right. So um, when we're talking about inequality, I mean, I'm talking about uh, we're not talking about being unequal. Of course, there's inequality in height between short people and tall people. Uh, there's inequality in hair color and eye color and skin color and, and many, many things like that. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is human created inequalities, especially in social, political, and economic realms. Okay, we're, 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 we all have these different physical characteristics. That doesn't mean one person has to be higher in society than another person. 
just because I'm taller doesn't mean uh, 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 just because I'm so good looking doesn't mean I have to be higher than other people. Uh, uh, political. We don't have doesn't mean I have to have more political power. Doesn't mean uh, I have to have better. Uh, I have to have a higher standard of living than other people. Those things are socially created. Um, and people who are at the top of the hierarchy, whether it's social, political, economic, or all three, uh, for as long as we've had recorded history, have come up with some reason about, about how it's really natural and inevitable that society must be unequal and the people like me must be on top. That's just the natural way of the world. And um, and getting rid of that is not possible or in the and, and uh, is, is not possible or in conflict of freedom or something else like that. Um, it's just, and it's, it's always funny because you, you run into an interesting, so what we do is we go back and look at the pattern of people saying this over time. Um, and uh, we, you find huge agreement of the predominant ideology in society will be justifying its inequality. That will be the predominant ideology in society. Um, and it will be justifying really restrictive, forcible laws that enforce that hierarchy. So they're saying the hierarchy is natural, but then they're also saying, well, we need all these laws to enforce it. Well, if it's so damn natural, why do you need all these laws to enforce it? Uh, that's one of the patterns you notice. But another pattern you notice is that all these different societies have some ideology that tells you why their inequality is natural and inevitable. But they all disagree about why. That's got to, no, so those two factors already, before I even tell you anything about this, have to put some doubt on this idea that inequality is really natural and inevitable. If, if, if it was, you'd think we'd all be coming up with the same explanation for it. And if it really was natural and inevitable, you wouldn't think we'd have to enforce it so much. Um, but we, but if you want to create uh, it, if you want to create such inequality, you do have to enforce it. But that's what we get to when we debunk these ideas. So we start out, uh, well, again, what are probably some of the oldest claims of inequality? Uh, and sadly, of course, the oldest is sexism. Uh, there's, uh, it's, there are societies, you know, there are societies that are, that have more equality between the sexes, but when there is inequality, there's, there's almost always some inequality between the sexes. And it is all it is it is as far as I know, always favored men. I've, I hear stories about societies where women are dominant. I've never actually read any anthropology that shows such a society. It always seems to be men are more favored here, less favored, um, but uh, but they're always it's the men who are dominant. Uh, now, and you do get that even in the most equal societies. Now, the first societies that have really significant inequalities of political power um, and of standard of living are probably chiefdoms. Now, we have chiefdoms that survived into the modern era and were observed by historical writers and anthropologists. And we have some reason to believe that these chiefdoms are similar to the first chief chiefdoms that appeared probably 10,000 years ago. Um, we don't know that for sure, but we have the, 
if you look at uh, a chiefdom in Hawaii um, in 1750, be- shortly before contact, it's going to be its archaeology would look pretty similar to the kind of chiefdoms we found in Turkey uh, 10,000 years ago. Uh, so we're thinking maybe it's there's going to be some similarities. We don't know that for sure, but we do have this tendency of 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 chiefdoms observed all over the world will tend to have a chief and his henchmen, and they will claim descent from from uh, some favored ancestor. Uh, usually, they wouldn't claim divine status. They would claim that they're divinely favored, but not divine beings, that they're somehow favored by the gods at high birth, and that justifies their position, and everybody else is naturally low, given low birth by the god or gods, and so it is natural that this person be on top and those people be below. Uh, that you get in a lot of in, in a lot of observed chiefdoms. Now, there are some chiefdoms that are more equal. The Iroquois Confederation, or the Iroquois Confederation, as we call them in the United States, uh, the Iroquois Confederation was relatively equal. As, as chiefdoms go, that one was for a pretty large-scale chiefdom that was actually fairly equal, that didn't have so much of this, the, these chiefs being high birth and stuff like that. Uh, so it's hard to say what you know, how many chiefdoms are like this, but probably the first really unequal societies where chiefdoms like this, societies maybe maybe five, ten thousand people, where where that had one guy on top that claimed like divine descent from ancestors, and of course you still get this in the world today. Uh, Japan, uh, the emperor of Japan claims to be descended from the highest born uh, the highest born child of the sun god or something like that, um, and you got this uh, you got something like this in. Uh, in uh, ancient Egypt, where the pharaoh was supposed to actually be a god, it's taken it a little step further when you're not just favored by the gods, but you are a god. You get that in ancient Egypt. You get that in the Roman Empire. Um, then in the Middle Ages, we the, these kind of issues had a problem, and that was the growth of the Abrahamic faith. The Abrahamic faiths are all based on the idea of the covenant, where... Uh, where Moses goes up to the mountain and all of the people make a deal with God. And in that sense of making this deal with God, there is the quality of all believers. So you have these three major religions in the West that are all based on the basic equality of at least of all believers, if not all human beings. But then you realize none of these religions are setting up egalitarian states. They're starting with this idea that everybody's equal and they got to set up some kind of uh, some kind of justification for it, um, for this. And what they come up with is, is a couple of things. The idea of the great chain of being, that uh, we're, all morally, we're all morally equal in the eyes of God, but also that we are at higher or lower station. And God has chosen us for our station. He's given us a particular task for our station. And being happy and being a good believer is to know your place in this station, this station that you have in life, uh, from the high end to the to the to the, to the low end. Uh, and then uh, in the modern era, and this actually these, these kind of ideas held sway in 
in Christendom for for a thousand years, from the fall of Rome uh, until uh, until the other early modern period. This 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 idea that everybody had a station in life, and that justifies the king's position and the lord's position and the knight's position and the peasant's position. All of that. Uh, that was extremely popular and well accepted. Uh, of course, racist explanations were given for uh, for um, inequality as well. That and that's racism isn't isn't new. It comes and goes in different forms. But like the uh, uh, the ancient Egyptian, uh, sorry, the ancient Greeks justified slavery with some racist ideology. Is that only the Greeks were capable of the highest? Uh, of the highest civilization. It was too cold in Europe, uh, so people developed uh, uh, stunted, and it was too hot in uh, it was too hot in the Middle East, so they were more susceptible to dictators. They had some crazy ideas like that. But in the modern, in the early modern era, the idea, the religious ideas were not holding a sway as much. And so people need some other idea of, uh, people are looking for other ideas. And Thomas Hobbes, comes up with one of the most popular ones. And so along with a social contract, the idea that we have a functional reason for inequality. The king is not the leader because he's divinely favored, but the king is the leader because we need inequality to keep the peace. That if it wasn't for the king, having an army and leading the army and making the laws and being the fountain of all judicial decisions. If it wasn't for the king, we'd all be at each other's throats. We'd have a war of all against all and life would be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. We need the king. And we have a functional idea of inequality that that even if we were all equal, we still need some people to have power over others. Now, I think that one is clearly not so true because... Um, um, say a police officer can arrest a celebrity. Um, but yet most police officers are not really higher in our hierarchy than the famous celebrity they might be arresting for whatever thing. So the functional idea, I don't know how that works. I think there's data that supports that, you know, greater inequality leads to greater social unrest, you know, like it, it's just, it, inequality is not good for, for the stability of a, of a state. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I got into the. Yeah, I guess I shouldn't have got into de- to debunking these things because that's another part of the. That's another part of the book. So then, after this, then you get in this idea of they're trying to come up with a quasi scientific justifications of it. So you get um, the head and the hand uh, analogy. Is that there are certain people who are head people. They're the thinkers, and there are certain people who are hand people. They're the doers. The thinkers have so much more complex thinking that they need to be the leaders. The doers can't work all that stuff out, but they're good with working with their hands. So we need the thinkers on top and the doers on the bottom. And who are the thinkers? Oh, it turns out they're the upper class. The upper class just happens to be the head people. Uh, what a great stroke of luck that the head people just happen to manage to get themselves in charge rather than just some brutes that had a lot of power. Uh, that took power and and forced themselves on everyone else. Um, so that is the head in the hand analogy, which gives. So the idea that kind of implies that, like maybe if you start to think about evolution, that well, some of us must be evolved to be heads, and others evolved to be hands. But that that led us after the theory of evolution came out. That led people to uh, 
something that clearly took off from the head in the hand eye ideology, but actually really rejected some of the important parts of it, and that is eugenics. The idea that actually there's a whole continuum of how who are evolved to be the, the smartest and the intelligent and the most fit, and who are actually not very well evolved, and this idea that evolution used to be killing off all of the undesirables, and evolution isn't doing that now that we have uh, medicine and, and we have uh, help for the poor and stuff like that. We're not, the undesirables aren't getting killed off and they're breeding and they're going to pollute everybody else's breeding. And that's going to hurt all those really good, uh, good gene people at the top. And that is the idea of eugenics. You need selective breeding to get rid of those unfit people. And you can see its similarities with the head in the hand, but the head in the hand thing, even though it put some people on top and another, some people are evolved to be on top and another people are evolved to be on bottom, at least with the head in the hand ideology, the, the smart people needed the dumb people. They needed the dumb people to do the, the, the labor of the hands. So there at least was some idea that we all need each other. But once you get to eugenics, you have really the first one that we don't even need the lower class. We want to get rid of the lower class. We want the lower class to die off. Then I guess presumably when eugenics reaches its full uh, its full fruition, maybe you could actually have equality. So equality there is natural now, but not inevitable once you the eugenics manage to breed out all those all those undesirable people. But of course, eugenics uh, didn't last very long. It was very much discredited by some of its most ardent followers, the Nazis. But it was really mainstream before the Nazis gave it a bad name. Uh, in the late 18th, early 20th, 1800s, early 1900s, it was extremely popular across the political spectrum in, uh, in most of the English-speaking countries and a lot of the other Western European countries as well. Um, and it did start to fall away in the, in the 1930s before it was really, it was, it was really discredited. It was falling away, but it went on. And so then to get us to modern political philosophy, um, we'll often argue not so much that equality is impossible, but that equality is in a conflict with freedom. That if you're going to have freedom, you're going to have inequality. And um, if you try to create equality, you're, it's going to cost you your freedom. And maybe it won't even deliver you. It won't even won't even deliver equality. It will. Uh, it will. Um, it will just end up. You'll some dictator is going to point themselves head, and he'll really be far more unequal than everybody else was. And of course, there's some plausibility to that because there are societies that claim to be uh, claim to be creating equality, and they actually produced dictatorships that were just as unequal or more unequal. And what came before, such as Soviet Russia and Maoist China and North Korea and so forth. There's at least some plausibility of this idea that there is a trade-off between freedom and equality, that e equality is impossible without a big sacrifice of freedom. That's the most popular way that this idea plays itself out today. But I'm but the same pattern exists. First of all, this is just the handy explanation for why we have to have inequality in the world today, and it's in a long line of these. 
The same kind of thing. We're all justifying the type of inequality that exists in the world we live in, that, that, that benefits the privileged people today. So that makes this belief suspect. Another one is that it's heavily enforced. They try to talk about the society be ruling free, but they have a lot of police and a lot of courts and a lot of government made rules that say this is this guy owns property, that guy doesn't. They can these rich people can trade it among themselves, but everybody else, they gotta be servants to the people who own property before they can get some. If they try to get some property on their own, they're going to be arrested. So it's really heavily enforced. So it's not really so different than these other ideologies. So this whole history should make us doubt this idea that there's this natural trade-off between freedom and equality. Just to reiterate, it's not a, like we're not just referring to, we're not referring to equality of, of income or, or, or wealth, but it's more like um, social status equality rather. Okay, uh, I wanna talk about all three, three of them, the three major forms of inequality. Uh, equality in, in, in economic inequality, which is wealth, income, standard of living. Then there's social inequality, people exonerated as being better than others. And there's political inequality, people will have the power to order other people around. Very often these things go together. In the United States and in Australia, the people at the top are the high, they're the high society, they're the ones with the wealth and the power and the high standard of living, uh, and they control our politics. Uh, as much as we like to claim that we're de democracies, most countries that claim to be democracies are the decision-making is highly dominated by the class that owns the most property. Yeah, yeah, okay. Just on, on this topic of inequality, um, I think a lot of what I see that that's in defense of um, mainly income inequality, let's say. But it's, it's this notion that uh, people are solely responsible for the wealth that they generate. Um, and they are, you know, I should be able to keep all of my hundreds of millions because I am the, I caused it to be created, all of this wealth. And because it was by my hand, I should be entitled to keep all of it. And fitting in with what you've been saying is that idea and that level of inequality is perpetuated by the social conception of or the, the socially enforced uh, rules, you could say, that dictate the redistribution of things like wealth or property. And it's, it's this, and when I say social, I don't mean like it's democratic, but it's just the way the society has come together and these things might be imposed from in a top-down way, but um, it's uh, justified in, in that way. I don't know if I've made myself clear here, but um, did you understand what I'm trying to get at? I'm sorry, I gotta admit that I, I don't understand what you're getting at. No. Here. No, maybe I don't think I understand what I'm trying to say. Um, I guess it just it comes down to uh, what justifies um, our claim to property or, or the or the um, uh, the money that we earn. You know, like there's a common libertarian argument for taxation is theft. You know, I am responsible for the generation of this wealth and I should not have to part with it. You know, I should not have to give it to the state because I have. I've, I've, I've created it. Um, and you know, we all have different capacities to generate wealth, uh, that are not, um, a function of our own actions. They're just, a lot of, it's just got a lot to do with luck. Um, 
anyway, I don't, I, I don't really know where I was going, but now I've, I've lost, I've lost the thread, and I'm trying, I'm scrambling for it. Um, that ties some of the different claims that we address in these books together. Um, the idea of there being this conflict between freedom and equality is tied into this idea that the type of property rights system we have is a natural right, that people just go out and spontaneously create this property system. And in fact, this property system was created by the government with the intention of benefiting the people most privileged in that society. Uh, And uh, there's nothing natural about that right to property. Uh, And property, and to create property involves interference. Um, Now, if I want to take if I want to take a piece of land, whatever I mumbo jumbo I might do to appropriate it, uh, if I want to take that and make it mine, that means I want to interfere with anybody else who might use it. So what private property is, is the right to interfere with your neighbors. Uh, well, with, with the other people in, in the entire world. Uh, to say, I have dominion over this and you don't. I can interfere with you, your uses that you might make of this land and, um, or resource, and you cannot interfere with the resources I might make of it. Uh, and when you're doing that, then you are making everyone else less free. You are interfering with them. There's a trade-off. You get more freedom, they get less. Well, if we're all getting property, that freedom, that trade-off might be worth it. But if some get that property and others don't, you're just making all those people less free. Uh, and so, the, so the, and, and then you have to enforce that. You have to enforce that with a lot of laws against trespassing, against stealing, and against, uh, 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 against uh, vagrancy, and against uh, people, um, and against poaching, and anything that's going to give people the possibility to keep themselves alive without working for the people who assume control of our resources. Now, so, so we just debunk this claim. And of course, the debunking of these claims is all kind of tied together as well, because you debunk these claims and you look at societies that you look at, if you want to debunk the claim that equality is impossible, well, you look at, you look at uh, throughout the anthropological record, are there societies that are equal? Now, um, you're never going to find a society that has perfect equality in every conceivable way. Um, but that in no way says, well, therefore, we have to have this really highly unequal society we have. Uh, in the same sense that you will never find a society that has perfect inequality. You will never find a society that has an absolute hierarchy where everyone has their exact place and no two people are equals in any significant way. Uh, and then it's 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 it would be a fallacy to say since we can't have perfect hierarchy, then we have to have uh, a complete equality or as near equality we can get to. And if we say, well, we can't have near equality, therefore we have to have this extreme hierarchy like we have in our country today. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. So what we're looking for is a society where people are substantially equal in standard of living, in social respect, and in political power. And there are societies like those. And it's, again, this is where we go back to the, uh, the nomadic hunter-gatherer bands, groups of usually less than 60 people who have 
uh, who will stay in one place for a few weeks and hunt in that area and then move somewhere else for a few weeks and hunt in that area and so forth. Uh, groups where people come and they go, they're camping with this group for a while and they're camping with that group for a while. These very loose confederations of people are said they have no political authority. When they make decisions, they talk them out. Anybody who's old enough to want to be in the conversation can be in the conversation. If you don't like what the group decides, you go off and do things your own way. Basically, no one has power over anyone else. They, and as a matter of fact, groups like these tend to affirm everyone's right to be totally free from anybody's orders. Nobody has to work for someone else. Nobody can give a person orders. Um, anthropologists say you can live in a society like this for your whole life and never hear an order. So you have extremely free societies where political power is equal, freedom is equal, socially very equal, to the extent that you have any social differences. You do have people who uh, who are maybe people who are more respected uh, and tend to be, they tend to respect elderly people more, but everybody expects to be elderly in their terms. So these kinds of inequalities aren't terribly significant and you get extremely equal consumption. I mean, to find inequalities in the society, they've had to go around, they've, they've had to reach the, because the, uh, because the actual goods that they have are just so incredibly equal. You know, everybody's going to have their tools and their 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 portable shelter um, in a in a nomadic society, and that's about all people keep. Maybe a tiny bit of of jewelry, uh, but you don't want to take too much of that because you got to move it from place to place all the time. To find inequalities, they have to look at things like, well, do good hunters consume more? Do they have a better diet? Okay, and you do find that a good hunter and a family of a good hunter might have a slightly better diet than someone else. If, if you're going getting down to counting calories, I think what you have found is a society that's very equal. And I've already argued earlier in this conversation that these are societies that are also very free. They're very free in the sense that people don't give each other orders. You're free to leave this group. You're free to not do what this group says. And we don't have anything like that. So we have societies that are, that are far more unequal and less free for the the least free of us. Uh, so we're losing out against uh, against hunter-gatherer bands in these in two important ways. The advantage that we have over hunter-gatherer bands is in positive freedom. It's an opportunity that yet we can create all kinds of opportunities that don't exist in this society with very high negative freedom. But what we have to do if we want to take advantage of these opportunities, we have to make them consistent with greater freedom and greater equality and make sure that no one's better off. And that's where we're failing. So we've got to treat people a lot better in a way that makes them freer from following other people's orders if they don't want to. And that's why we tie this into basic income, is that a basic income can give that person the power to refuse following other people's orders. If you want me to follow your orders, you make it worth my while. You don't starve me to death till I do what you say. You don't separate me from my own ability to make my living on my own and with the people of my choosing by mixing our labor with the land by saying I can only mix my labor with what I can get permission from a property owner to make. Yep. Uh, so that's a good time to talk about UBI. Before we dive into it properly, I guess most of the arguments leveled against it 
at least from what I see, is this like, oh, it's just completely infeasible. Uh, you know, we, we can't afford it. There's no way we can pay people, uh, everyone in society, a, a and enough to enough to satisfy their their basic needs. Um, and from what I've seen, um, in on numerous occasions, that these claims aren't, uh, they're not verified. They're not. They're actually not legitimate. It's not as it's not as expensive as you would think um, to actually provide this for for all citizens. Um, is that is that the case? Uh, well. Um, what people mean by we can't afford it, it varies uh, from, from person to person. There's a lot of ways to, 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 to define what we can afford. Um, so uh, anything that costs more than you think it's worth is unaffordable. Uh, uh, you know, I can say uh, uh, I might buy some, uh, I, 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 you know, I might hire somebody to come clean my I could I I could afford to hire some somebody to come and cook dinner for me every night. Uh well not every night, but I could afford somebody to do that uh, an awful lot uh, uh fairly often. Um but I just as soon cook my dinner myself. Um it is it is not worth the price. Uh I could afford it in the sense that it wouldn't break me. But I can't afford it in the sense it's more than I want to pay for how much I enjoy that service. Now, if you oppose basic income, if you hate the idea of people getting an income, even if low income people get an income, even if they don't work for wealthy people, then you're going to say basic in, we can't afford basic income in the sense that it is a luxury that I don't want to pay for. In a sense, it's, it's cost more than you think it's worth. In that sense, it is always unaffordable to the people who say it's unaffordable, and there is no data that can disprove that. But there's, of course, another sense. When, when we think of affordable, we usually think of an objective sense of affordable. Is that objectively, there are some things that I cannot afford. I cannot afford to uh, move into the top floor of the Four Seasons and stay there for the rest of my life. That would eventually that would exhaust all of my savings on this frivolous, stupid luxury. Um, as and and so that I physically cannot afford to do that, uh, or financially cannot afford to do that. And there and uh, even even if I, no matter how much I wanted to do that, I could not do that. Uh, now it is possible that basic income could be like that. If we had if we had. Um, an income that was a basic income that was really high and generous, and then most and 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 everyone decided, well, with an income this high, I don't want to work at all. So I'm just going to live off the basic income. If everybody did that, then the basic income would be unsustainable. In that sense, we would not be able to afford it. And in that sense, it's it, we could say it's unaffordable. Now, and there must be some level of basic income that is unaffordable, like. Uh, in the United States, per capita income is what I think sixty thousand dollars or something like that. Well, if we had a basic income that was that was that was a hundred thousand, that'd be more. You could buy more with your basic income than we can produce with everybody working. Clearly, we cannot afford that level of basic income. But the question is, what level of basic income can is sustainable? And in that sense, um, everything is. We've studied basic incomes as high as 150% of the U.S. poverty level. And 
the decline in work effort has not been anything near the unsustainable level. So in that sense, basic income at at, at 150% of the poverty line is affordable. In this other sense, it was some people don't, it costs more than they think it's worth. In that sense, it is unaffordable. So were you saying that they've, experiments have been run with income, like with basic income levels at 150% of what the median income is and people who are receiving those. No, inc- no, 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 no. 150% of the poverty line. Poverty line. If okay. it was 100% of median yeah, income, yeah, okay. it would not work. Yeah, sorry. I don't know where I got that from. Okay, so 150% of the poverty line and that recurring universal payment did not reduce um, the amount of hours those people were working as a comparison. So they were still working just as hard. No, it did It, it, it did reduce it, but uh, it reduced primary workers. Uh, um, primary workers worked, um, worked um, this, an average across the studies shows shows um uh like four and a half to five percent in average hours per week and a broader range is like two to seven percent across these various studies um but and and secondary workers reduce their work effort a little more um uh, a little more than that but and and all of those and and uh all of those were uh and and when they reduced their labor generally it was uh, it was uh, children living in the household staying in school longer. It was um, parents, usually mothers, spending more time with children. Both of those things you could call work. We don't usually count anything that doesn't make money as work, but those are things uh, that maybe we want people to be doing more of. Um, and the, so those are the first two factors. And the third factor was primary earners who, when they happen to become unemployed, say so they lost their job or something, taking more time to find the right job. Um, so the decline in labor effort was not very much, and it was not about people dropping out of the labor force. So we're a long way from finding that out. I'm sure uh, from finding out how high basic income has to be. And there is some level of basic income where 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 that would happen, but uh, how high it is... Uh, it's it's really higher than anybody is realistically proposing in the short run. I think an unappreciated fact of like what, what would be a consequence of a universal basic income is that you do away with the need for a minimum wage, and businesses require like from what I've heard, uh, starting a business and running a business and keeping that business alive over time is actually really really tough. Uh, you know, a lot of businesses go out of business within you know. Uh, one or two years. So if you had a whole population of people uh, who are uh, earning, are getting a basic income and um, a business could you know, potentially afford to hire someone for just $5 an hour and me as a free citizen, if I'm getting a basic income and my basic needs are cared for and if I have, let's say I've just started uni and I want to learn a lot of skills or whatever, I may be happy to take that $5 an hour because I know that on top of that $5 an hour, I'm going to be uh, acquiring lots of new skills and working on something that I'm uh, I'm really interested in. So I I see it as, I actually see a universal basic income as pro-business and as sort of like an entrepreneur's allowance. Like not only could it um, remove a lot of... uh, I guess the ails that are, you know the, the the things that affect the the most disadvantaged, but it could also 
dramatically improve our capacity to innovate and to s- tackle social change and to and to get people doing things that they that align with them the most um yeah well i would say the most important thing about uh basically about entrepreneurs is 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 not the wage issue but uh but the uh but the the fact that the entrepreneur has this cushion from the basic income imagine now uh, uh the analogy i like to say here for entre- for for business owners is um is with trapeze artists okay let's say trapeze what you want to do and uh, what you want to do with uh say you want do you want to get your trapeze artist to do the fanciest biggest most interesting tricks you want to get them to do that. Uh, well, there's a lot of ways you can incentivize tra- trapeze artists to give do the big tricks. Maybe you pay them loads and loads of money. Pay them millions of dollars for doing these fancy, fancy tricks. That's kind of the way we're doing it now. That's one way to get them doing fancy tricks. Another way is use some of that money you were using to pay them to do the fancy tricks and use that to provide a net. Now, which trapeze artist is going to do the best tricks the one with the net or the one that makes a lot of money when they when they when they when they do it the net is really the most important thing to get people to take that leap you get so many more people to take that leap if they have that cushion um and and uh, we're wasting so much talent because we don't let people start businesses unless they do menial jobs for uh for people who already own businesses for years and years before they can save up their money um and and uh and and i'm i'm an example of it my brother and i when i started working in qatar and and got some uh decent income where i had disposable income left over my brother and i started a business where i invest the money um he buys houses fix them up rents them out and and and, uh, and we own the business he had to start part-time not um he had to start part-time and stay longer part-time mostly because in the united states you've got to buy private insurance and we couldn't afford to get him private insurance uh, whereas he could have just you know started off whether you know if we had a, a if we had um uh, if we had public health care and a basic income, we could have started that business a lot earlier. And who knows, you know, how much, how many more houses we could have fixed up and rented out and made real nice by now. Now, uh, but the idea of the wage thing that you brought up is important for businesses, but it's interesting what you would expect to happen with the wage. And there's some evidence of this from empirical studies. But we have, if you have a basic income, what you expect is bad, the, 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 Wages for bad jobs are going to go up. People in meatpacking industries, people in food service, uh, well, the lowlier parts of food service, the dishwashers, uh, migrant laborers, those kind of wages are going to go way up and the working conditions are going to improve. Uh, But other jobs, jobs with a high advancement potential where you can really learn things, wages might actually go down. And and actually, we might need a minimum wage to protect those people from being really exploitive. It could be that your um, that your media mogul will always have um, will always have a bunch of um, a bunch of unpaid secretaries 
He says, well, you know, you'd be my secretary a few years. Maybe you move up in the business. Maybe you don't. Um, you know, and they could just have this parade of people who want to break into the business. And that might become a little bit like he is taking advantage not only of his basic income, but everybody else's basic income. You might want to have something to... I don't know how big of a problem that would be and if we should even worry about it, but it is a potential problem there for basic income. Yeah, no, there are definitely other things to worry about uh, before. I mean, there are all consequences of, you know, they're, they're good problems to have, you know, if, if you know that your whole population, if, you, if you've effectively removed poverty and you know that people are just, um, they no longer have this this looming concern for, for security. Um so I know that we're like we've been speaking for for a decent amount of time now. Um, do you want to uh, wrap up soon, like over the next ten minutes or so? Yeah, I guess we should do a wrap up. If you want to, you know, we didn't get through like half of the topics you talked about. So if you want to do it again another time, we we should do it when I'm in Doha, so the time change is yep. smaller. But if you want to do it another time and take off where we where we left off, you know, I'll be happy to talk more. Uh, but if, yeah, but but yeah, you're right. We should be we should be wrapping up about now. There's just so I mean, it's not easy to cover the history of private property and of uh, our conceptions of uh, freedom, and then the, 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 there's the whole uh, discussion of universal basic income. So, but um, so that sounds good. That sounds good. Uh, picking up perhaps picking up where we uh, left off, or you know, just booking in another one for some time. Um, so if people want to find out. Uh, where to keep up with your work, how to find out more about um, what you're up to, about universal basic income. I'm obviously going to link to all of your books um, and everything that we've discussed on the show notes. Um, so they will be listed there as well as, you know, your Twitter profile. But where, where would you um, direct people? Well, okay. I am I'm very soon. I plan to launch whiterquist.com. Uh, it is, I, I've actually owned whiterquist.com for 20 years. But uh, my family, my, my brother and I were using it, but then we just kind of, it was hard to do websites back then. And we kind of let it fall away. Now I have a research assistant helping me out, create, getting my research on whiterquist.com. That's going to launch really soon. Um, and uh, and that's much easier to remember because the other ways, you've got to go to, you've got to search Whiterquist selected works. That's where my, that's where my research is. Um, but whiterquist.com is going to be like a, a searchable way to find that. Um, also, you can look at my research YouTube channel. I actually have two YouTube channels. I have my personal one where I do my music and funny stuff. Um, and then, uh, then I have the research one where you have me giving speeches, giving interviews, um, and uh, academic presentations and things like that. Um, so just go to YouTube and search Carl Weiderquist, and I'm sure, uh, search channels, and I'm sure those two channels will be the only thing that comes up when you search Carl with a K Weiderquist. Um, so those are, the, those, are the best ways to, those are the best ways to find my stuff. Perfect. And um, I think, you know, we'll, probably pick up this conversation in the future, but do you have any uh, requests or uh, things you'd like to say to the audience before we wrap up? Uh, no, I, I, I'd like to thank you for this great opportunity to talk about this stuff in like some real depth. You know, I appreciate that a lot. Uh, 
And uh, yeah, I'm glad you find an audience that likes this kind of in-depth stuff. That's that's fantastic to have. Yeah, well, I know I do. So there's at least one more of me out there. So and there is. So I've discovered. So uh, it's a it's nice. Um, alrighty, Carl. Uh, well, um, thank you very much, and uh, looking forward to continuing this conversation. Great. Me too. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. All of the links to things discussed can be found in the show notes, which you can find either on your podcasting app or on my website at samhbarton.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up to date with new episodes and anything else I've got going on, subscribe to my newsletter through my website, follow me on Twitter at samhbarton, and subscribe to the YouTube channel where you can view all of the podcast episodes as well as short clips of some of the highlights from them. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to share it with whoever you think might love it and consider giving it a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening and until next time, stay curious.